Chapter 3, Part 1 of Zone Policeman 88. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Zone Policeman 88 A Close Range Study of the Panama Canal and Its Workers by Harry A. Frank. Chapter 3, Part 1. Meanwhile, my fellow enumerators were reporting troubles in the bush. I heard particularly those of two of the Marines, Mac and Renson. Merry, good-natured, earnest by sports, even modest fellows, quite different from what I had hitherto pictured as an enlisted man. Mac was a half-and-half -half of Scotch and Italian. Naturally, he was constantly effervescing, both verbally and temperamentally. His snapping black eyes were never still. Life played across his excitable, sunny, boyish face like cloud shadows on a mountain landscape. Whoever would speak to him at any length must catch him in a vice-like grip and hold his attention by main force. He spoke with a funny little almost foreign accent, was touching on forty, and was the youngest man at that age in the length and breadth of the canal zone. At first sight, you would take Mac for a mere roustabout, like most who go a-soldiering. But before long, you'd begin to wonder where he got his rich and fluent vocabulary and his warehouse of information. Then you'd run across the fact that he had once finished a course in a Middle Western university, and forgotten it. The schools had left little of their blighting mark upon him, yet pump Mac on any subject from rapid-fire guns to grand opera, and you'd get at least a reasonable answer. Though you wouldn't guess the knowledge was there unless you did pump for it for Mac was not of the type of those who overwork the first-person pronoun, not because of foolish diffidence, but merely because it rarely occurred to him as a subject of conversation. Seventeen years in the Marine Corps, you were sure he was jollying when he first said it, had taken Mac to most places where warships go, from Key King and the Islands to Cape Town and Buenos Aires, and given him not merely an acquaintance with the world, but, what is far more an acquisition, the gift of getting acquainted in almost any stratum of the world in the briefest possible space of time. Mac spoke not only his English and Italian, but a fluent island Spanish. He knew enough French to talk even to Martinique's, and he could moreover make two distinct sets of noises that were understood by Chinese and Japanese respectively. He was a man just reckless enough in all things to be generous and alive, yet never foolishly wasteful either of himself or his meager substance. Mac first rose to fame in the census department by appearing one afternoon at Empire Police Station, dragging a bush native by the scruff of the neck with one hand, and carrying in the other the machete with which the bushman had tried to prove he was a Colombian and not subject to questioning by the agents of other powers. Renson, well, Renson was in some way Mac's exact antithesis, and in some his twin brother. He was one of those youths who believe in spending prodigally and in all possible haste, what little nature had given them. Wherefore, though he was younger than Mac appeared to be, he already looked older than Mac was. In zone parlance, he had already laid a good share of the road to hell behind him. Yet, such a cheery, likable chap was Renson, so large-hearted and unassuming. That was just why you felt an itching to seize him by the collar of his olive-drab shirt and shake him till his teeth rattled for tossing himself so wantonly to the inferior bow-wows. Renson's bush troubles were legion. Not only were there the seducing brown spigoty woman out in the wilderness to help him on his descending trail, 
but when and wherever firewater of whatever nationality or degree of voltage showed its neck, and it is to be found even in the bush, there was Renson sure to give battle and fall. It's no use being a man unless you're a hell of a man, was Renson's influenced philosophy. How different this was from his native good sense when the influence was turned off was demonstrated when he returned from cautiously reconnoitering a cottage far back in the wilds one dark night and reported as his reason for postponing the enumerating, if you'd butt in on one of them Martinique booze festivals, they'd crown you with a bottle. Already one or two enumerators had gone back to private life, by request. Particularly sad was the case of our dainty blue-blooded Panamanian. As with many Panamanians, and not a few of the self-exalted elsewhere, he was more burdened with blue corpuscles than with gray matter. At any rate. On our cards, after the query, color, was a small space, a very small space, in which was to be written, quite briefly and unceremoniously, W, B, or M.X., as the case might be. Uncle Sam was in a hurry for his census. Early one afternoon, our Panamanian helpmate burst upon one of his numerous aristocratic relatives in his royal thatched domains in the ancestral bush. When he had embraced him the customary fifteen times on the right side and the fifteen accustomed times on the left side, and had performed the eighty-five gestures of greeting required by the social manual of the bush, and asked the three hundred and sixty-five questions de rigueur regarding the honorable health of his honorable horde of offspring, and his eye had fallen again on the red cards in his hand, the fact struck him that the relative was of precisely the same shade of complexion as himself. Could he set him down as he had many a mere red-blooded person, and thereby perhaps establish a precedent that might result in his own mortification? Yet could he stretch a shade, or several shades, and set him down as white? No, there was the oath of office, and the government that administered it had been found long-armed and argus-eyed. Long he sat in deepest meditation. Being a Panamanian, he could not, of course, know that Uncle Sam was in a hurry for his census. Till at length, as the sun was firing the western jungled treetops, a scintillating idea rewarded his unwanted cogitation. He caught up the medium-soft pencil and wrote in aristocratic hand down across the sheet where other information is supposed to find place, color, a very light mixture, and taking his leave with the requisite seventy-five gestures and genuflections, he drifted empirewood with a dozen cards the day had yield. Which is why I was shocked next morning by the disrespectful report of Renson that my friend the boss had tied a can to this big's tail, and our dainty and lamented comrade went back to the more fitting blue-blood occupation of swinging a cane in the lobbies of Panama's famous hostelries. But what mattered such small losses? Had not Scotty been engaged to fill the breach, or all of them? One or two breaches more or less made small difference to Scotty. He was a cozy little barrel of a man, born in Dumbarton, and for some years past had been dispensing good old Dumbarton English in Panama's proudest educational institution. But Panama school vacation is during her summer, her dry season from February to April. What more natural, then, than that Scotty should have concluded to pass his vacation taking census? For obviously, a man must pick up a wee bit of change wherever he can. I seem to have been appointed to a purely sightseeing job. One February noon, I reported at the office to find that passes to Gaton had been issued to five of us, Scotty, Mac, Renson, and Barter among the number. The task in the town by the dam side, it seemed, was proving too heavy for the regular enumerators of that district. We left by the 210 train. Cascadas and Balsabispo rolled away behind us. 
Across the canal I caught a glimpse of the wilderness surrounding the abode of old Fritz. Then we entered a, to me, unknown land. I could easily have fancied myself a tourist, especially so at Matachin, when Max solemnly attempted to spring on me the old tourist hoax of suicided Chinaman as the derivation of the town's name. Through Gorgona, the Pittsburgh of the zone with its acres of machine shops, rumbled the train and plunged beyond into a deep, if not exactly rank, endless jungle. The stations grew small and unimportant. Bailamonos and San Pablo were withering and wasting away. Orcalagato, or hanged alligator, was barely more than a memory. Tabernilia was a mere heap of lumber being tumbled on flat cars bound for new service further Pacificward. Of frijoles, there remained barely enough to shudder at, with the collector's nasal brawl of, Free Hololes! And everywhere, the irrepressible tropical greenery was already rushing back to engulf the pygmy works of man. It seemed criminally wasteful to have built these entire towns, with all the detail and machinery of a well-governed and fully furnished city, from police station to salt cellars, only to tear them down again and utterly wipe them out four or five years after their founding. A forerunner of what, in a brief few years, will have happened to all the zone. Nay, is not this the way of life itself? For soon, the spillway at Gaton is to close its gates, and all this vast region will be flooded and come to be Gaton Lake. Villages that were old when Pizarro began his swine herding will be wiped out. Even this splendid double-tracked railroad goes the way of the rest, for on February 15th, a bare few days away, it was to be abandoned, and where we were now racing northwestward through brilliant sunshine and Atlantic breezes, would soon be the bottom of a lake over which great ocean steamers will glide, while far below will be tall palm trees and the spreading mangoes, the banana, king of weeds, gigantic ferns, and, well, who will say what will become of the brilliant parrots, the monkeys, and the jaguars? For nearly an hour we had not a glimpse of the canal, lost in the jungle to the right. Then, suddenly, we burst out upon the growing lake, now all but licking at the rails beneath us the zone city of Gaton climbing up a hillside on its edge and scattering over several more. To the left, I caught my first sight of the world-famous locks and dam, and at 3.30 we descended at the stone station, first milepost of permanency, for being out of reach of the coming flood, it is built to stay, and shows what canal zone stations will be in the years to come. There remained for me but seven miles of the isthmus, still unseen. On the cement platform was a great foregathering of the census clans from all districts, once we climbed to the broad porch of the administration building above. There before me, for the first time in, well, many months, spread the Atlantic, the Caribbean perhaps I should say, seeming very near, so near I almost fancied I could have thrown a stone to where it began and stretched away up to the bluish horizon, while the entrance to the canal, where soon great ships will enter, poked its way inland to the locks beside us. Across the treetops of the flat jungle, also seemingly close at hand, though the railroad takes seven miles, and thirty-five cents if you are no employee to reach it, was Cologne, the tops of whose low buildings were plainly visible above the vegetation. Not many zoners, I reflected, catch their first view of Cologne from the veranda of the administration building at Caton. We had arrived with time to spare. Fully an hour we loafed and yarned and spoke before whistle blew, and long lines of little figures began to come up out of the depths and zigzag across the landscape, until soon a line of laborers of every shade known to humanity began to form, paychecks in hand, its double head at the pay windows on the two sides of the veranda, its tail serpentining off down the hillside and away nearly to the edge of the mammoth locks. Packs of the yellow cards of Cristobal district in hand, 
a relief to eyes that had been staring for days at the pink ones of empire, we lined up like birds of prey just beyond the windows. As the first laborer passed this, one, nay, several of us, pounced upon him, for all plans we had laid to line up and take turns were thus quickly overthrown, and wild competition soon reigned. From then on, each dived in to snatch his prey, and dragging him to the nearest free space, began in some language or another, Where do you live? This was the overwhelming problem. In what language to address each victim? Varder, speaking only his nasal New Jersey, took to picking out Negroes, and even then often turned away in disgust when he landed a Martinique or a Haitian. West Indian English alternated with a black potois that smelt at times fairly of French. Muscular bullet-headed Negroes appeared slowly and laboriously counting their money in their hats. Eagle-nosed Spaniards under the boina of the Pyrenees. Spaniards from Castile speaking like a gatling gun in action. Now and again, even a snappy-eyed Andalusian with his essless slurred speech. Slow, laborious Gallegos, Italians and Portuguese in numbers. Colombians of nondescript color. A Slovak who spoke some German a man from Palestine with a mixture of French and Arabic noises I could guess at, and scattered here and there among the others, a Turk who jabbered the lingua franca of Mediterranean ports. I got all who fell into my hands. Once I dragged forth a Hindu, and shuddered with fear of a first failure. But he knew a bit of a strange English, and I found I recalled six or seven words of my forgotten Hindustani. Then suddenly a flood of Greeks broke upon us, growing deeper with every moment. Above the pandemonium, my companions were howling hoarsely and imploringly for the interpreter, while clutching their trembling victim by the slack of his labor-stained shirt, lest he escape unenrolled. The interpreter, in accordance with a well-known law of physics, and the limitations of human nature, could not be in sixteen places at once. I crowded close, caught his words, memorized a few questions, and there I was with my Pumayanas, Postinton, Padre Mianos, enrolling Greeks unassisted, not only that, but haughtily acting as interpreter for my fellows, not only without having studied the tongue of Achilles, but never even having graced a Greek letter fraternity. Quick tropical daylight descended, and still the labor-smeared line wound away out of sight in the darkness. Still workmen of every shade and tongue jingled their brass checks timidly on the edge of the pay window, from behind which came roaring noises that the Americans within fancied Spaniards, or Greeks, or Romanians must understand because they were not English noises. Still we pounced upon the paid as upon a tackling dummy in the early days of spring practice. The colossal wonder of it all was how these deep-chested, muscle-knotted fellows endured us, how they refrained from taking us up between a thumb and forefinger and dropping us over the veranda railing. For our attack lacked somewhat a gentle courtesy, notably so that of the rowdy. He was a chustless youth of the type that has grown so painfully prevalent in our land since the soft-hearted abolishment of the beech-rod of revered memory of that all-too-familiar type whose proofs of manhood are cigarettes and impudence and discordant noise, and whose national superiority is demonstrated by the maltreating of all other races. But the enrolled were all, black, white, or mixed, far more gentlemen than we. Some, of brief zone experience, were sheepish with fear and the wonder as to what new mandate this incomprehensible U.S. was perpetrating to match its strange sanitary laws that forbade a man even to be uncleanly in his habits, after the good old sacred rite of his ancestors to remotest ages. Then, too, there was his own policeman in dressy, new starch khaki, treading with dangling club in the ice eye of public appearance, waiting all too eagerly for someone to start something. But the great percentage of the maltreated multitude were old-timers, men of four or five years of digging, 
who had learned to know this strange creature, the Americans, and the world too, who smiled indulgently down upon our yelping and yanking like a St. Bernard above the snapping puppy he knows well cannot seriously bite him. Dense black night had fallen. Here and there lanterns were hung, under one of which we dragged each captive. The last passenger back to Empire roared away into the jungle night. Still we scribbled on, backed a yellow card and dived again into the muscular whirlpool to emerge dragging forth by the collar a Greek, a Pole, or a West Indian. It was like business competition, in which I had an unfair advantage, being able to understand any jargon in evidence. When at last the pay windows came down with a bang and an American curse, and the serpentining tail squirmed for a time in distress and died away, as a snake's tail dies after sundown, I turned in more than a hundred cards. Tomorrow the tail would revive to form the nucleus of a new serpent, and we should return by the afternoon train to the lock city, and so on for several days to come. It was after nine of a black payday night. We were hungry. The rowdy, familiar with the lay of the land, volunteered to lead the foraging expedition. We stumbled down the hill and away along the railroad. A faint rumbling that grew to a confused roar fell upon our ears. We climbed a bank into a wild conglomeration of wood and tin architecture, nationalities, colors, and noises, and across a dark, bottomless gully from the high street we had reached, lights flashed amid a very ocean of uproar. The rowdy, as if to make the campaign as real as possible, led us racing down into the black abyss, whence we charged up the further slope and came sweating and breathless into the rampant rough and tumble of payday night in Nougaton, the time and place that is the vortex of trouble on the isthmus. Merely a short street of one of the half-dozen zoned towns in which liquor licenses are granted, lined with a few saloons and pool rooms, but such a singing, howling, swarming multitude as is rivaled almost nowhere else, except it be on Broadway at the passing of the old year. But this mob, moreover, was fully seventy percent black and rather largely French, and when black and French and strong drink mix, trouble sprouts like jungle seeds. Now and then Policeman G. drifted by through the uproar, holding his sap loosely as for ready use, and often half-consciously hitching the heavy number 38 colt under his khaki jacket a bit nearer the grasp of his right hand. I little knew how familiar every corner of this scene would one day be to me. A Chinese grocer sold us bread and cheese. Down on the further corner of the hubbub, we entered a Spanish saloon and spread ourselves over the white bar, adding beer to our humble collation. Beyond the latticework that is the color line in zone dispensaries, West Indians are dancing wild, crowded hoedowns and shuffles amid much howling and more liquidation. On our side, a few Spanish laborers quietly sipped their liquor. The Marines, of course, were busted. The rest of us scraped up a few odd spigoty dimes. The Spanish bartender, who is never the tough his American counterpart strives to show himself, but merely a cheerly good fellow, drifted into our conversation, and when we found I had slept in his native village, he would have it that we accept a round of Valdepenas which must have been potent, for it moved Scotty to unbutton an inner pocket and set up an entire bottle of Amontillado. So midnight was no great space off when we turned out again into the howling night, and, having helped Renson to reach a sleeping space, scattered to the bachelor quarters that had been found for us and lay down for the few hours that remained before the 551 should carry us back to Empire. End of Chapter 3, Part 1 Recording by Todd